I just had flashbacks of um, my dad in um, home family devotions. You know, I would be called down to family devotion unwillingly, and um, I'd just come disgruntled, and I wouldn't have my Bible. And uh, my dad always used to say this phrase. He would say, you know, would you go to the, to the, uh, um, the forest without your cutlass? How can you come to a Bible study without your Bible? I've come up to the pulpit and my Bible is there on the chair. Uh, Adrian, please, would you uh, help me pass my, my Bible? No, no, that one there. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ron. This is mine, yeah? I hope you haven't slipped me a CSV by accident. <laughs> um, would you turn with me to Proverbs, the uh, book of Proverbs in chapter 28? As we're continuing through this um, theme of prayer, this series on prayer as in, you know, not necessarily always just how we pray, but what we might practically pray for. You understand? Um, you know, we looked in Psalm 1 about praying that we might be that blessed man, that blessed woman who is, have our roots deep by the stream, that we might be fruitful. And uh, last Sunday, as we looked in uh, uh, Colossians, chapter 1, uh, praying for that life pleasing unto God. And that was a prayer as such, a, 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 well, it was a sermon really about us individually. I want to go about how we can pray for the church. We have praying for ourselves, the blessed man or woman, a life as individuals pleasing unto God. We want to pray about the church, how we might pray specifically, practically, and theologically for the church. But we want to delve a little bit deeper into that prayer for ourselves this morning. Um, two short verses. Proverbs chapter 28. I'll be reading from verses, just verses 13 and 14. Proverbs 28, verse 13 and 14, I'll pray and we can delve right deeply into it. Proverbs 28, verse 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. But whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Let's pray. Father God, it's with a, a heavy heart that I've prayed uh, over this, this message. Um, often feeling lacking and incomplete and inadequate and Alone, I truly am inadequate in every sense of the word. But because this is your word, not my word, it makes its relevance a thousand, a millionfold. 
Father, I ask you to help us as we seek to understand this aspect of confession and repentance. May we continually have a heart of repentance towards you, Lord. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches his disciples and teaches us how to pray. And we've looked at that uh, so many times, either myself, Pastor Ryan, multiple times pastors brought to us. And in one of those petitions that the Lord teaches his disciples, one of those petitions is repentance and confession, asking God to forgive us of our sins, forgive us of our debts. And if you're not convinced that repentance and confession is a vital part of the Christian life, a very important part of our prayer lives, it's my hope and prayer that by the end of this message, we'll be a little bit more persuaded based on these two verses from Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8 teaches us the positive aspects of repentance and confession, but also the negative aspects and consequences of a lack of repentance. Or when we are not regularly confessing our sin. The first point I want to bring to us this morning is this. Sin disrupts our spiritual vitality and communion with God. Sin disrupts our spiritual vitality and communion with God. In the Bible, King David is one of the closest people to God. A man after his own heart, and yet we see later in his life that that closeness to God was compromised. And the reason for that was his sin. David committed adultery with Bathsheba, one of the wives of his most loyal soldiers. Bathsheba got pregnant and David attempted to but failed to cover up his sin. And David only added sin upon sin by arranging the death of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite. David thought he was in the clear. David thought that all was well. But Proverbs 28 teaches us that successfully covering our sin never leads to success. Verse 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. We'll explain a little bit later what that prosperity exactly entails. But taking at face value, it's clear that our unconfessed sin, based on verse 13, is somehow impeding some kind of prosperity. That when we are not regularly repenting, it is getting in the way of some kind of success or blessedness. David's 
unconfessed sin certainly did something to him. In Psalm 32, David describes a season in his life when he left his sin unconfessed. And ask yourselves as I read this, does this sound like spiritual prosperity? Does this sound like blessedness and success? This is David saying, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. We've had a taste of that heat this week. But there we see unconfessed sin is within his bones, wasting him away. The author of Proverbs is echoing what David says here. The author of Proverbs here in chapter 28, verse 14, is spot on when he says, whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Meaning those who stubbornly live in sin, refuse to acknowledge their sin, refuse to repent of their sin, constantly justify and defend and minimize and excuse their sin, will fall into calamity. And this word here for calamity is translated as distress, misery, unhappiness, the absolute opposite of prosperity, success, and blessedness. Simply put, sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. And you might say, oh, but didn't Jesus die on the cross? Didn't he bear the full weight in full penalty for my sins? And he did. He died and rose victoriously defeating both sin and death. And you say, am I not united with Christ? Do I not share in that same victory? And of course, the answer is yes. Because Christ did all those things. And Romans 8 tells us, therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But do not be fooled. Do not be fooled. And Proverbs is a book about wisdom. Do not be fooled that although there is no condemnation for our sins because of Christ, there are still consequences for our sin. David wasn't condemned. Even after he committed adultery and murder, he was a true believer. Nothing, nothing could separate him from God's love. I mean, that's an impossibility, and that is our truth. His sin did not affect his status, nor did it alter his salvation. But David, although he was not condemned, he most certainly still experienced the consequences of his sin. Brothers and sisters, although we too are in Christ, we too have that great joy of eternal salvation eternal assurance, we have it. We too experience consequences for our sin. 
I think there are times when, as a believer, we might say, oh, I'm saved. Jesus died for my sins. I don't really have to give much thought or serious consideration to my sanctification. I don't need to seriously and wholeheartedly pursue holiness. I don't need to regularly repent and confess. Proverbs would say that that is foolishness. We absolutely should care. We absolutely should be going back, calling upon God in repentance. Moses says in Numbers 32, be sure your sin will find you out. This is a warning that God has given to the Israelites. Be sure your sin will find you out. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know about your walk with God. I don't know about what temptations you face every day or what temptations are you're giving into every day or even recently. Maybe you think you've successfully covered up something. Those sins, maybe it's been a month, maybe it's been years. You really think you're getting away with it. And this isn't really doing any harm to me or to anybody else. I'm, st I'm still a leader. I'm still in the church. My family's doing well. We have future prospects. I'm actually advancing in my career and in my life. And for all those reasons, we tend not to take sin seriously. And yet Numbers tells us quite plainly, don't be foolish. Your sin will find you out. Meaning this, other people may never find out about that sin. That's not what Numbers is saying. Everyone in church may never find out about this sin. But Numbers is saying, God is saying, that that sin will find you out. The sin is going to do something in your life. It's going to have the kind of consequence. It's going to expose itself and manifest itself in a way that you may not actually realize. Sin has consequences. None of us are immune to those consequences. So although our salvation is not on the line when we sin, praise God for that assurance in the gospel, The spiritual prosperity is on the line. I mean, the brighter says, talked about that will fall into calamity. I mean, what is this calamity? I mean, earlier I mentioned distress, unhappiness. I mean, if you ask yourself, do you want any more of that? Do you want any more distress, unhappiness? And you would say, no, I don't want any more of that. I want less of that. That's why a prayer life that includes repentance is vital to the life of every believer. And what kind of calamity, what kind of consequences is the writer of Proverbs talking about here? Firstly, it tells us that there are worldly consequences. 
I mean, of course, you know, we don't need to go too far in knowing that in the world, if we are falsifying information, you know, we are not doing our self-assessment accurately, or if we are not telling, I don't know, the housing association about that, that extra room that we've got, we're not paying that bedroom tax, we might get fined out. You know, that might result in a fine, maybe some penal punishment, jail. But there are spiritual consequences. I hope this morning our eyes are open to that reality. There are spiritual consequences that we will face. As a sort of subhead into that, the first spiritual consequence is that we would experience God's fatherly discipline. We will experience God's fatherly discipline. David says there in uh, chapter 32 that he felt the heavy hand of God upon him, that his bones were wasting away, his strength was dried up in the heat, like the heat of summer. He was experiencing the spiritual consequences, the discipline of his father in heaven. And this heavy hand that David was experiencing was not God's vengeful hand upon him, because, because of Christ, praise God, God disciplines us, but our discipline is never punitive. Because Titus took away all the punishment, it's never a condemning discipline, but it is a correctional discipline. God corrects us, and it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good. Every true believer, when we are stubbornly living in sin, God is going to discipline us in love to draw us back to himself. A spiritual consequence is we are going to experience God's fatherly discipline. Another spiritual consequence is we're going to have diminished usefulness and diminished fruitfulness in the kingdom of God. I truly believe that every true believer here this morning, and every true believer across the globe, we have a heart's true desire, a real desire to be useful, to be fruitful. I know we're trying to, we're trying to work that out. There's sometimes a bit of hesitancy, you know. I'm going, I don't want to sing too badly. I don't want to use the instrument, so I'm going to practice, 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 so I'll withhold myself. But deep down, there's a desire to be useful, to be fruitful. Do you know that your sin, your unconfessed, unrepentant sin, is in fact affecting, diminishing your usefulness and fruitfulness for the kingdom of God? Paul writes to Timothy and he says that if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Again, he says to Timothy, if you cleanse yourself, you repent, you pursue holiness and sanctification, you will be set apart. You will be more useful to the master of the house, who is Jesus Christ for every good work. If we want to be useful, friends, we need to have a more robust life of repentance. 
we need to take sin more seriously than we maybe are at the moment. For the sake of honoring and glorifying God in our lives, we need to take sin much more seriously. I mean, let me ask you, I mean, just about your, your, your zeal. Just a rhetorical question between you and God. Your zeal for God, you know? Your zeal for evangelism, for serving. Maybe you've lost your appetite for the word of God. Maybe you've lost your appetite for worship. You're sort of coasting. Your church attendance is and prayer, you know, sort of on the, way, on the wayside. The spiritual disciplines, they're not really being effective in your life. John Owen, a pastor in the 1600s, he says that, he says this, sin often untunes the heart by entangling its affections. Sin often untunes the heart by entangling its affections. You know, we're really blessed with uh, uh, um, Jacob playing the guitar. Um, but, you know, if I take that guitar and I mess around with it and, you know, I untune it, trying to pretend like I know what I'm doing. It's not going to be as useful as it ought to be. At least in the immediate sense, it won't be as useful. Someone's going to have to spend time retuning it. The songs are not going to flow as rightly. It doesn't devalue the guitar. The guitar is still as valuable as it was when I, when I picked it up. But it's untuned. Likewise, we are not devalued when we continue in unrepentant sin and not confessing. Our value is in Jesus Christ, but we're not as useful as we ought to be. As Christians, we want to bear as much spiritual fruit as possible. Love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness to bless those around us so they can reap the benefit that we're bearing good fruit. That we're bearing fruit here in Wood Green. That we're bearing fruit in London. That we're blessing across the globe. That we're sending more missionaries overseas like Adrian and Abigail Yeboah and the boys. We, we want to be fruitful beyond just here. Our fruitfulness and usefulness is diminished if we continue in unrepentant sin. Thirdly, another consequence, a worldly consequence of our sin, is our loss for spiritual sensitivity. Our loss of spiritual sensitivity. Hebrews 3.13, uh, the writer says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
sin has a calcifying, hardening effect on our heart. You're not as sensitive as you used to be. The preaching of the word just doesn't seem to be affecting you as it used to be. You're in the word at home and it's just, it's just not impacting you. It seems so difficult. It's an uphill climb to, to pray, to read a few verses. I know that only too well. It's difficult. Again, John Owen says, you that were tender and used to melt under the word have become sermon proof. You know, like fireproof, you become sermon proof. It makes us, as John Owen says, that we'll come to church week after week after week and the word of God is not affecting us. Songs are no longer touching us, touching our heart. We participate in the Lord's Supper and it's, it's not having the effect that it ought to have. The means of grace is not communicating grace to us. We've become sermon proof. We've become Lord's Supper proof. But there's something that we can do. There's something that we can do to soften our hearts to the Word of God. And that begins, obviously, by being present. But taking time to make sure that our worship is more than just mere physical presence. And we'll talk a little bit more about knowledge and understanding and wisdom, but studying not just the Bible in and of itself, but studying the Word of God that we might show ourselves approved, that we might decipher and know more about ourselves. That lack of sensitivity leads to an experience of loss of communion with God. And this might be the most important aspect of that loss that we have from sin. We lose communion with God. Our fellowship with God becomes diminished. And I want to be clear, we're not speaking about our union with Christ Jesus. We're talking about our communion. With Christ, our union is certified. We are one with him in spirit through faith but it's our communion that is affected. One writer says this, while our union with Christ cannot be hindered or broken, the sweetness and intimacy of our fellowship with Christ can be hampered through sin. Do you know that the, the sweetness and intimacy with Christ that you and I long for that sweetness where we're going to have so much joy in our life. That sweetness where we know that Christ is sufficient 
for all things. Christ is there and present in our times of sorrow, our hardships and our pain. That longing to know that we're not on our own. It's hampered by our sin. I don't know if any of this comes as a surprise to you, but maybe you've never really thought about it. But Proverbs is not kidding when it says that our unconfessed sin does lead to calamity. Well, of course, that's, that's not even an exhaustive list. Sin destroys us, destroys our lives if it goes unchecked. If we don't know about it, then we won't do anything about it. This morning, you know. We know, friends. And there's something that we can do about it. Laying our sin bare. No longer justifying or defending it. No longer excusing it. Minimizing it. We're saying to the Lord, search my heart. Show me how I have grievously offended you. I'm pleading for mercy. Creating me a new heart. May I forsake the sin. Turn away from it. May I be more useful, more fruitful, more intimate with you, Christ. That sweetness that I tasted years ago, Lord, bring it back to me. Sin leads to calamity. So Proverbs lovingly, and lovingly I believe, lovingly but sternly speaks to us, letting us know that our unchecked lust, our wandering eyes, is doing something to our communion with God. Don't be foolish to think that it's doing nothing because no one else sees don't be fooled into thinking it's doing nothing. You're somehow getting away with it. Premarital relations, extramarital relations. You think those secret sins won't find you out. The sweetness and intimacy of our communion with Christ is affected by rampant gossip, by unrighteousness, by anger towards our spouses, towards our children, towards our friends. Slander against somebody else in the church. Engaging in, 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 in crude joking and drunkenness. This morning I pray, as we follow Christ, we would be awakened and motivated this morning to rise up to the calling. Rise up to the calling with which we've been called. That our usefulness and fruitfulness will be reinvigorated. That those around us will taste from the fruit of joyful, sweet communion with Christ. That they might, themselves might eat. As a believer, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. To forsake those sins in order to enjoy God more. In order to do that, we might have to ask ourselves, we do have to ask ourselves two questions. 
we're going to take this seriously, how can we avoid such spiritual loss and calamity? And secondly, what can we do to restore that communion with God? How can we avoid it? And what can we do to restore it? The second point I want us to see as we answer those questions is that the fear of the Lord drives us from sin and draws us back to him when we do sin. The fear of the Lord drives us from sin and draws us back to him when we do sin. Verse 14 there. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. But whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. True blessedness is in the one who fears the Lord. And that is the key. The key to stay away from the spiritual consequences of sin is fear. And that is the same key that when we do sin, because of the fear of the Lord, we go back to God. I mean, this, this, this phrase there, fear the Lord, the fear of the Lord, occurs 27 times in the entire Bible. 27 times in the entire Bible. And of those 27 times, 19 of them are in Proverbs. Proverbs is a book about wisdom. If you want to have wisdom, if you want to be wise and address the sin in our lives, in our lives, we need to know about the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. That's an example of what's called parallelism which means the second line is a statement that relates to the first. Proverbs 9.10 is saying, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The knowledge of the Holy One, now of course, that includes factual knowledge. We need to know about God and rightly follow Him and worship Him, but it's more than just facts. It's more than just facts. Let me illustrate it this way. I mean, this week it's hard to envisage, but picture a snowy, snowy wood green where the ground is filled with snow. And, you know, you take your car out because you have to go somewhere, even though you're, you're, you're often against it. You think it's not the right thing to do, but you have to go and, I don't know, it's Christmas time, you've got to pick up auntie from Wood Green Station so you'll navigate the road. But as you're driving and you, on a normal sunny day, you can take in the scenery, see the birds and everything. It's a beautiful area. Okay, maybe not Wood Green, but picture somewhere else. But it's a beautiful area. You're driving. <laughs> 
with Queen's Beautiful. It's, 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 it's. Sorry, Pastor. I know Pastor Ryan will not be a fan. But a beautiful scenery where you're driving. Normally, you enjoy that drive. But during, when it's snowy, you're going to change the way you drive to navigate the road. You'll slow down a bit and drive a bit more cautiously. You'll be aware of that back, those back wheels that are not caught in the snow and can sometimes avert you from the direction you're going in. The wonder hasn't changed. The world itself hasn't changed, whether it's wood green or anywhere. That what's outside hasn't changed, but your approach to the drive has changed. You're mindful of the distance between you and the car in front. That really is the idea of the fear of the Lord. Life hasn't changed, but you're mindful of the way in which you're progressing in this life. The Lord God is beautiful, and we know this. We know the factual knowledge, we can recite it. We know of his faithfulness. We can read with Ryan, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. But as we fear the Lord, we truly know that. When you know the beauty of God, you also know his character. And that will change the way you live. The snow changes the way I drive. You're more aware of the presence of God as you navigate your life under the fear of him. So, now you're going to keep your distance from certain people. You're going to eliminate time spent in specific places, doing specific things. You're more weary of how you're navigating life. You're still taking the same route. But you approach it in a safer manner. That's the way the fear of the Lord changes our lives. He is beautiful. But his presence does something that we're so aware of this fear of the Lord now that we begin to move much more wisely. Pray for this awareness of the presence of God in your life. Pray that you know what it means to fear the Lord. Proverbs 16.6 says that by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. It's preventative. It's going to do a good thing. When you contemplate the goodness of God, it turns us away from sin. When I contemplate the goodness of the Lord, I'm going to think twice about that conversation I'm going to have with my wife or with someone else. I'm going to navigate it differently. This is someone that's created in the image of God. Those things matter, but they matter less than the institution of marriage. So I'll navigate it differently. I'm not going to come with my puffed up, I might come a bit more humbly. I mean, if you ask her, I haven't been praying for that a lot, 
But we need, that's, that's, that's the steering that we need to go to. We contemplate the goodness of a God and it turns us away from sin. Practically, our greatest weapon in our fight against sin, our fight against anger, against greed, against worldliness, against lust, is not just accountability. It's not blocking certain websites on our computers or on our phones. Those things are good, those things are necessary. They're very practical. But John Owen would say that it has to be much more than just accountability. Software is not our main weapon in our battle against sin. He says that it's when we think greatly about the greatness of God. When we begin to think greatly of the greatness of God, sin is no longer going to be so appealing to us. It's not going to be so attractive. This is our greatest weapon against sin. The fear of the Lord and thinking greatly about his goodness. And how do we do that? Well, we expose ourselves to God's goodness each and every single day of our lives. That's why we gather here on a Sunday. That's why we encourage one another to, to meet during the week to spend time in small groups and Bible studies that we can delve more deeply into God's goodness. It opens our eyes to the goodness that he's doing in our lives already. We listen to sermons. We pray. We sing. Fill yourself with the greatness of God. That's all preventative. What happens when we do sin? It's the same answer. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord draws us back to God. When we do sin now, the fear of the Lord is not being afraid of God the way that we have phobias. You know, I'm afraid of spiders or I'm afraid of heights. I I think that's probably why many of us don't return. Because we might consider the fear of the Lord like a phobia. And that phobia says, I'm just going to keep away from what I fear. That's the wrong kind of fear of the Lord. And that's largely because we don't know him. We don't know him as well as we ought to. Satan wants this fear because it's going to keep us away from being with one another. It's going to keep us away from the word. It's going to keep us away from prayer. Because I've been told that, you know, if I don't, if, I don't, if I'm afraid of heights, I'm not going to take the stairs. The Lord doesn't want us to run further and further away from him. But when we properly fear God, it makes you to run faster to him. An example of the wrong kind of fear is the parable of the prodigal son. The son lived with his father. He lived under his father's roof his entire life. Yet he he never really knew his father. Maybe he had some factual knowledge. He knew who his father was. He knew of his father's wealth. But there was no relationship. I mean, look, that causes me to be sorrowful because 
There are many churchgoers who are in the same boat. They come to church week after week and they're here for all the worship, here in the Father's house, yet they, they never really know the Father. Having a meaningful, personal relationship with him. And that was in the, in the, uh, the prodigal son, that was manifested in his premature demand to give me what belongs to me, what, I, what you owe, so that I can go and, and be with my friends. And once he hit rock bottom, once he hit calamity, as we just learned there in verse 28, he didn't know enough about the Father because he dwelt there for a little bit. For oh, let me go and work for the world, feeding the pigs. Still trying to work in his head, but there came a point when he remembered. Still, it was just, it's a bit more intimate, factual relationship. Oh, you know, in my father's house, even the servants have food to eat. Maybe I'll just go back and I'll say these little phrases. If he knew his father, he would not have left home in the first place. But he did leave home. We, like sheep, have all strayed. We have all left home. We have all wandered away. We've all made mistakes. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And we all waited and delayed. But in God's time, by his mercy, he brought us home. But to drive us home, he compounded that calamity by staying longer than he ought to have. He didn't confess. He didn't repent. And like us, when we're not confessing, when we're not repenting, we're compounding calamity upon calamity. Had the son truly feared his father, he would have known that his father never left the window never left the door, was there looking, longing, waiting for him to return. There's no need for us to delay. I've got to get my act together. I've got to go back to my father's house. And I went home thinking, you know, maybe I'll have a job. No. Well, was the, the, the psalm says, you know, to, to, to be a, a, a toilet cleaner in the house of God is a great place to be. Maybe he'll, he'll give me a job. But what did he receive? An open arms. He received a kiss. He received the robe. He received the party. And I'm sure he was shocked and surprised, blown away by that reception because it's what he was expecting. But because of Christ, that is the reception we will always receive when we confess, when we repent. The open arms of God will always be there to meet us. 
It doesn't discount the consequences. God is a holy God. You know, I'll, I'll meet some, you know, the, I've had encounters with some of those uh, black Hebrew Israelites and all that kind of stuff. And there are people that are Muslim friends and neighbors and colleagues. And they will say, you know, if you just, they'll, they'll use those words, repent, or if you turn to, to, to their God or to Allah or their perception of God, he'll forgive you. And I'll ask them, yeah, but what about the wrong that I did? Oh, don't worry about it. He'll just forgive you. That's not a just God. That's not a God to be feared. No. The just God of the Bible is a holy God. He brings justice to the oppressed. He lifts those who are downtrodden and low. And because of Christ, we know we can come to him because all God's anger towards sin was poured on him. There is no limit to God's love because of Jesus Christ. There's nothing as you come to him and you think, oh, there's things that I have to pay. It's all been paid for. But we must come to him. Some might think that there is an expiration date on his forgiveness. You've missed it a long time ago. I'm just going through the motions now. I attend church because it's what people do in this country. But I know that deep down, he may not forgive me for what I did 20 years ago, 30 years ago. The people here may not know, but he knows. And I'll just wait for my day in court. No. Repent. Confess. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins if you are not in Christ. And you have the promise, the assurance that when he comes again, he will take you to his home where there's many rooms. Repentance is a strenuous spiritual activity, but the results are truly truly worth it. Think, think about Christian history. Think about biblical history. We see that revival, revival comes when, when, when a people bring themselves low, acknowledge where they are falling short in the presence of God, and he blesses. He blesses. In 1907, there was a massive revival in Korea called the Poyang Gang Revival. This revival led to many new converts and considerable growth in the Korean community. And what fueled that revival was repentance. It wasn't the praise team. It wasn't one missionary who, who went and, and, and the gospel exploded exponentially. Those who were present described that man after man would rise and confess their sin, break down and weep, and then throw themselves on the floor, beat the floor with their fists, agony and conviction, and they will say in prayer, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. 
hope that this morning that we would see man after man rise and confess their sin. I mean, it would be beautiful. I'm not asking for everyone to rise and do it now, unless you feel led to, of course. But turning to the Lord, confessing our sins, Husbands confessing their sins. Wives confessing their sins. Pastors, elders, deacons rising to one another. Brothers, sisters in the church rising, confessing to one another. We will become even more fruitful. We would grow in our intimacy and our joy would be so tangible, others can taste of it. Think of Joel chapter 2, as revival came. People returned to the Lord, knowing that he is gracious, willing to forgive, steadfast in love and abounding in mercy. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Let's pray that we will be a repenting and confessional church, a repenting and confessional people for the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father God, may we be inhibited in our confession and repentance, Lord. Those secret sins that no one knows about. That we cast them into the fiery pits never to return again. And we come in brokenness. Genuine brokenness and humility. But a humility that doesn't fear because you are a vengeful God in the sense of taking out your anger towards sin. By, by crushing us. But a fear knowing that you crushed the sinless Savior. You poured out your wrath onto the only one who lived the perfect life. You took to the cross the only one who walked in faithfulness whose eyes were never diverted, whose heart was never drawn to sin. But who, because of the humility which we read in Philippians chapter 2, counted equality with you, Father, as nothing, 
as not a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, Lord. Praise God. Jesus emptied himself for us. Father, I pray that in a very real and practical way we would empty ourselves of the burden of unrepentant sin in our lives. We truly confess and turn to you, Lord. That we might be fruitful and useful for the kingdom of God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, that we don't need to carry this. We don't need to live a life of not knowing, of being unsure of where we stand with you. Thank you, Father, that we know that through your word we can come to you and you will always receive us. You will always hear us. You will always give us an audience. And you will always answer us. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.